This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good morning, everybody. We're recording November the 8th. We have Jonathan Golubon, the head of U.S. Strategy and Quant Research at Credit Suisse. And we have Tim Parati as well, our chief investment strategist. Uh, it's been a while since Jonathan's been on. We're going to have a good conversation about earnings and elections and a lot of different topics. So let, let's get started. Uh, let's start with you, Jonathan. So the earnings season's been stronger than expected, and it's kind of resulted, you know, marginally, I'd say, and it's resulted in some back-to-back weekly gains Inflationary concerns resulted in a flight from capital markets, but at the same time, we've seen the economy grow modestly in the third quarter. Um, and when we, when I guess, when do we finally see a drag on corporate earnings and overall economic downturn? Gosh, so there's there's a lot to unpack there. I think that that's like ten questions all built into uh, <laughs> one. Um, so you know, it, it's really interesting. We we looked at. Um, we looked at the way that markets and earnings and stuff um, work um, over the last 50 years, and we actually found that corporate profits around recessions um, really um, kind of group into two buckets. The periods were high inflation and the periods with low inflation. In the periods with high inflation, it actually is, is pretty good for corporate profits because they're measured in nominal terms. Like if a company is charging more for their product, they may not be selling more of it, but in dollar terms, their profits go up. And so with inflation this high, it's actually uh, likely to be pretty good. And we're probably going to see profit growth for the next you know, several quarters or longer. I, I, what you are seeing is this kind of interesting mix, Drew, where revenues are on fire. Like when I say on fire, 10.5%, 11% revenue growth, and you have something, um, you know, EPS growth is running more like 6%, which is you know, not not a disaster, but but there's a fair bit of margin contraction. We actually think that that's going to continue a bit, you know, as over the next few quarters, where revenue stays strong, but the margin pressure continues. And uh, the reason for that is um, is wages continue to be sticky, but CPI pricing power is coming off a little bit. You know, as things like cars become available in the marketplace. You know, the, these big premiums that people have had to pay to buy a car, those are going to go away. There's some, it's a variety of areas. You know, we no longer have the backlogs. So, so there's a little bit of a loss in pricing power, but there's not really much of a, a decline in wages. So that's going to bite into the numbers a little bit, but they should still stay positive. So you've got, but you have been ticking down your numbers a little bit here as companies have guided down uh, for Q4, and we still haven't gotten a ton of guidance yet for 2023. So where are you now for 2023, and and it, 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 do you think that, do you have confidence in that number? Or do you think there's downside risk to that number? So we 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 actually did um, adjust our number down, Tim, a decent amount. So this year. Um, our number is in, in S&P profit terms, which doesn't mean anything except for geeky guys like me, but we have um, $227 of S&P profits in 2022 and only $230 next year. And the reason is, is that the, the decline in the, in the revenues, well, the revenues are going to continue to move up, but the, but the margins are going to basically bite it for the reason that I was just mentioned before. As a matter of fact, if you, 
look at the difference between you know the 227 and 230 it's basically flat the only thing you're really getting on that eps is just buybacks yeah so and jonathan go ahead no no please and and where um on the revision front if you look at things on an x energy basis uh how rapid do you feel like your, your revisions are coming down how big of a difference does it take when you strip out energy um it's it's a pretty big deal. I mean, I I, I can you know I, I can read you some numbers if if, if you want it on it. But I, I think that there's a, there's a part of that we have to, um, you know, we have to kind of not simply throw out the thing which looks really brilliant without throwing out some things that look sure. horrible yes. on the other end. Yes. I mean, this is so. Let, let's talk about so energy is looking really strong, but materials aren't. Materials are are, are weaker, um, and normally they track together, but right now they're not. And in the last, you know, in the last quarter or two, the revisions have been great in energy, but oil prices are are well off their peak levels. You know, gas at the pump is well off peak levels. So why is why is energy revisions? You know, why are, are you know are the expectations for what an energy company is going to make? Why are they doing better? It's actually um, because there's a lack of refining capacity. So it's not a Ukraine issue. It's not a, you know, it's not an economy recession issue. It's the fact that we've underinvested in in um, in refining, and and that's you know some of that's companies, some of that's public policy. Um, yeah. And if you said to me, kind of, what are the kind of the there's there's really three groups that are funky right now in terms of earnings. So the first one is energy, where the oil price is not driving it um, as much as this other thing, um, tech which since the iPhone came out in 2008 and for rough, more or less every single quarter for the last 14 years, tech companies have kind of done a better job of delivering their earnings than the rest of the market. Not every quarter, but directionally. Um, this is the worst that tech has done relative to the rest of the market since the iPhone came out. Mm -hmm. um, the earnings growth is, is, is really problematic. But the revisions are actually, we keep having this hope that tech is going to turn around and then they keep disappointing. So they're, they're missing by more than others are. They're being revised lower. Um, and then the other one, which is weird, is, is financials, which because you have banks take these reserves for future yes. losses, you, you run a bank, it's doing perfectly fine. Nobody's defaulting on a loan. What do you do? You take a hit to earnings because you think maybe next year there'll be a hit to earnings. Now, it's not... You, you have no particular insight and it's not showing up in your business. That's the way the, the regulation requires you to, you know, the accounting standards require you to do things. So the, um, the, that sector would probably be a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two things that keep me probably less sanguine on earnings growth. I, I totally get the point on, uh, on nominal terms and companies do seem to still have this pricing power consumer demand say so strong but housing really is breaking down pretty hard and and you know we're in a freeze in housing and i think the freeze the next step is that you have to have lower pricing you just you can't more than double the cost of capital in the housing market and not see downward pricing and i think there's going to be a meaningful wealth effect that i do think will will crimp demand uh because i i, I am a believer that sort of as housing goes goes the goes to the U.S. economy. There are just so many knock-on effects to that. On, on one prior point that you made, which is so much in our wheelhouse, is this underinvestment concept in energy. You know, I talk about it a lot, where CapEx in the refining sector is down 50% in three years, 
And if you talk to your energy analyst or any energy analyst, they'll tell you, we're never building any more refining capacity in this country. And it's an amazing thing that this mantra of give me the money back, do not reinvest capital into what may be, while it's a very, very, very slowly melting ice cube, still a, still a melting ice cube, I, I, I got to think that energy profits because of the lack of reinvestment upstream and downstream will stay really strong. But, but my bigger concern by, on the by near the way, term. Yeah, I, it's, yeah. If you would have asked me a year ago or 18 months ago to make a, you know, what's my favorite sector, not for the quarter, but with a 10 year view, it had to be technology. Yeah. That is entirely shifted to, for the exact reason you're mentioning, I don't know whether it's 10 years, but next three or five years, energy should really be a very, very profitable sector. And the cash flows from should be really strong because this lack of, of investment and there's all kinds of implications. But I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a really interesting place to put your money. And then on that other point that I made, do you have concern that you're going to see a demand, a wealth effect from housing? I know we're in a better position than we than the rest of the world because so many of us have 30-year mortgages. The best thing I own is, is my mortgage, for God's sakes, at two and seven eighths. I'm very proud of that. But still, there is going to be a wealth effect, I've got to think. Yeah, it, it, so there's, there's a bunch of different issues there. So first thing is, what are the things that drive consumer spending? Because we know that the consumer is the most important driver of the economy. So the, the first thing is, you know, do you have a job that you're confident that you're gonna, that you're gonna keep? And right now, while we, you know, we in the industry are talking about how the economy may go into recession and, and, and the like, um, there is a, an enormous number of open job wrecks. So if I did lose my job tomorrow, and I'm not concerned that I will, but if I did, I can go across the street and find a job making similar money. And that's true of an investment strategist. That's true if you're waiting tables. There's just, uh, there's so, so yeah. and, and if you think about making a long-term commitment, I'm buying a house, a car, whatever it is, remodeling my kitchen. Um, yes, I care about the financing rate for those things. But the number one question I have is, am I confident I'm going to have a job tomorrow for me to be able to make those investments? And that's, that's the answer right now is that that's a, that's a home run. But you're, but you're absolutely right. If we do see a correction in housing, even if, let's say I told you that your house is now worth 10% less. You're not moving, nothing's changed. Yeah. But, you, but in your mind, you know that's worth less. You are, you know, you know statistically, you're less likely to buy a new refrigerator or redo your roofing or, or paint your house. And yeah. those are all parts of the economy. Even if you never realize the sale of that house, it's going to change what you do. And, and it doesn't affect every company or every sector of the economy equally, but it is a really big, uh, is a real big impact. I'd be curious to hear uh, both of your thoughts on, you know, moderate inflation Obviously, like when U.S. has had good real earnings, when inflation's between two and four, we haven't obviously this year uh, in terms of a stock sell-off. So I guess what's the inflection point between good inflation and bad inflation? You want to take that, Tim, or you want me to take that? I mean, look, I, I, I think we're in bad inflation mode. I, I don't yeah. think there's any two ways about it. I, I am afraid uh, that the Fed has gotten itself way behind the curve, and we are in a bit of a, of, a, of a wage spiral. I think there's a ton of drivers to that. Uh, I think we have a worker shortage. I don't think that worker shortage is going away. Uh, and I think that the worker shortage, which is driven by, you know, 
aging demographics, deglobalization, falling productivity, male labor force participation rate that's been going down only for 70 years. Uh, I think all of those are drivers to keeping this worker shortage and this wage price spiral in place. And I think the Fed is going to have a hard time in breaking that for the reasons that Jonathan just enumerated, which is that there is so much demand for labor. You know, you look at the NFIB this morning, what was the number one complaint? They still can't find workers. Uh, and so you have compensation going up and you have profitability optimism going down. So, I mean, I think we're in the bad spot for inflation, but Jonathan makes a very good point at the outset here, which is that companies report in nominal terms. Companies raise prices beyond where their pricing pressures are coming. Uh, so the top line may stay stronger than the bears would, would think, but I do think there is increasing pressure on operating margins, on gross margins. So, so Drew, let, let me let me take um, a, let me just take the question on directly, and then and Tim raises a whole bunch of additional points that are are, are worthwhile. But um, there are two things that drive um, the value of a company. I mean, it's really simple. What are their cash flows and their earnings, and what's the discount rate you put against them? This year, we started with 150 basis points on the 10-year. We're ending with over four um, percent. In a in a really simplistic way, I could care less what inflation is. If my discount rate goes up almost three times, uh, I'm, the, the value of an asset. And people think about bonds, you know, like, you know, we, we know really simply interest rates go up, bond prices go down, but it's exactly the same for equities. You know, the only difference is a bond, you know exactly what the cash flows are going to be. And in equity, we have to kind of guess at the cash flows and they change over time and things like that. But but it's the same, it's the same math. So um, our work shows that when interest rates rise that from low levels, they go from one and a half to two, what generally happens is the stock market stocks go up. And that's kind of like confusing because I, I just told you that your discount rate rises, but why do interest rates rise? Because there's an increase in demand for capital. And when you have an increase in demand for capital, that means the economy is strong. So when you have interest rates rising from a low level to a medium level, um, your discount rate goes up, but your projections for the future go up, your equity risk premiums fall, and it's and all's great. There's an inflection though, where when interest rates go up beyond what's reasonable or normal to something that is now choking the economy, making it to Tim's point before, making it harder for people to go out and lease a car or harder to go out and you know uh, you know buy a home or what have you. And then you have a rising discount rate. Now it's not funny anymore. And our work shows that it's about three and a half percent on the 10 year is that inflection point. Um, so you asked a question in terms of inflation and I'm answering in terms of interest rates, but that's what our, our work shows. And, and I also think that, that Tim makes a really good point that you know, if you're a company, let's think about it as an individual. What I want is high wages and, and, and I want corporate pricing power to be weak. I want to go to the store and buy eggs at the same price as yesterday, but I have I made more money. That's what I want. If you're a corporation, you want the opposite. You want low wages and high pricing power. Here's the here's the the problem, and, and you see this. I, I don't want. I know you're going to get political later on with some of your questions, and but if you look at what the administration is saying or what Republicans or Democrats are saying, they're, they're talking about you know job creation and and, and all. But the economy is actually running way too hot, and this wage inflation 
It's great for you as an individual because you have more money in your pocket. As long as the guy who's that is employing you, um, if he's losing money, he may he may ultimately be forced to fire you because he can't pay the higher wages. So it, it's a double-edged sword. And what we really should hope for is something that's stable. What we've had in the last, I don't know, 12, 15 months, it's not that long, this inflation problem hasn't been with us for years. It's relatively new. But we, we've gone from a situation where people were having a problem paying their bills because CPI was going up faster than wages. What we're going to see in the next 12 months, Drew, is that CPI is going to fall, but wages are going to stay higher. So now you're going to see a situation where the consumer is going to feel emboldened. They're going to feel great. And the employer is going to start having a bigger problem. And neither one of those are healthy. I guess that kind of brings us to, you know, long-term outlook. Um, what do we see in terms of equity returns, bond returns over the next couple of years? You want to go first, Jonathan? Um, yeah. So, you know, Tim was commenting um, before about the demographics and, and, and things like this. I mean, we have, we have an aging population in the U.S. We have an aging population um, around the world. The, the single country that has the population aging the fastest is China because of their yeah. one-child policy. And so this extraordinary you know, miracle of Chinese growth that we've had over the last 30 years, which has fueled a lot of global GDP, um, that, that's probably well behind us. And if you look at the success that we had in the 70s, 80s, 90s, a lot of that was because women entered the workforce for the first time. And that's behind us. So we're probably looking at a much weaker global GDP than we've had for really in the, in the post-war period since the, since the end of World War II. Um, and the other thing is we've had for, um, you know, for, for the, you know, really since the fall of the Soviet Union or maybe even well before, before that, we, we've had this burst of globalization that's really been beneficial to not only uh, to us as Americans, but to people all over the world where we've lived, lifted living standards and the like. And we're seeing with, you know, some of the, the political challenges, whether it's Russia and Ukraine or whether it's China with Taiwan or other things of, of this nature, that we're, become, we're likely moving to a world that's a little bit more insular. And part of the reason for that, Drew, also is supply chains. It was really great in the, in the kind of before COVID where, you know, you built a car and you got the best, cheapest part from wherever in the world you needed to get it. The problem is, is that when you have 50,000 suppliers on one vehicle, you have 50,000 people who can screw up your ability to make a car. <laughs> so now we're starting to move things incrementally back onshore or if not onshore to the U.S. within the region, right? So maybe things we made in Mexico, maybe in the U.S., but we're not going to have as much over, let's say, in Asia as we had before. And all of these things are actually growth negative. So if we're in a world where um, right now we're experiencing a lot of inflation because we have a very tight labor market, um, it's on, on the other side of this recession that we're going to experience, I don't know whether the recession is in one or two quarters from now or five or six quarters, but there's always a recession in your future. On the other end of that, we will end up with more capacity in the labor market. We will we will end up getting rid of this this problem of, of lack of availability of labor and inflation will come down and things will, will renormalize. And that means that interest rates 
are likely also to come down because the longer term trend is weaker growth. So let me maybe summarize this. We are in a secular weak economic inflation and growth environment over a period of 30 years or 20 years, whatever it is. And we are having a totally messed up um, current environment, not only because of the pandemic, but because of the you know, insane amount of stimulus we put against it, which distorted everything. But we, w- we will work through that and we're gonna end. So this is not a permanent environment that we're in right now. Um, I don't know whether it lasts a year or two or three more, but, but, but we will quickly work through this and get back to something that feels much more like um, it, it did, you know, in, in the, you know, in the 20 teens. Yeah, you know, it was turning into a love fest. You had me there until the end where, where, where I, I tend to agree more with your colleague Zoltan, um, who kind of makes this argument with, I think he said in that piece that he wrote a couple months ago, I don't know where the workers are, but it's like waiting for Godot. I, you know, they're not coming back. So I guess I'm less sanguine, and, and I feel like the worker shortage is going to be structural. It, it, it is not ephemeral. And while we'll have the Fed will win, the Fed will get unemployment higher here in this cycle, in this impending recession. But I think that the wage pressure and the worker shortage is here to stay. Because as you say, you know, the demographic challenges are not just in the US, they're obviously in Europe, they're famously in Japan. People are now recognizing that the Chinese have been lying about their demographic issues to some degree. Um, no surprise. Uh, you know, Korea has one of the lowest birth rates. Taiwan has the lowest birth rate in the world. So all of these countries are shrinking. We are bringing manufacturing back. It's wild to see a non-farm payrolls and actually see growth in manufacturing. So I do think there is going to be this wage pressure that stays with us on the other side of the impending recession. And that's where I worry about multiples. The, the, the concern that equity multiples, look, all GDP is, as you, as you pointed out, is workforce growth and productivity growth. We could talk about productivity, but I think we agree that workforce growth is going to be a problem. And it makes me worry that um, that the multiples that you want to put on, the equity, uh, the equity risk premium, probably needs to go higher because we are not going to see the kind of profit growth and top line growth uh, that we've been able to achieve historically. All right, so true. We're, we're going to take the gloves off of here, but I'm going to tell you why I don't agree with, <laughs> with, with Tim on this. Um, at the end of the day, all inflation comes down to wages. You know, you, you, you know, your gardener may want a raise, you know, may want more money for your gardening or or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's because he has to pay somebody's wages. And 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 even the goods, you know, even the fruits and vegetables that we buy, at the end of the day, it's because somebody has to pick them or process them or 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 drive them someplace. And if we end up with a tight labor force, Tim, like, like, like you mentioned, the Fed is going to have to clobber the economy and in, in, in a, larger, a large enough way that they bring, right now what you have is demand for labor is greater than the supply for labor. So what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to kill that demand. And, yeah. and if, 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 that labor, if that labor shortage persists, it just means that the Fed has more to do. And what I fear is that, um, I mean, just think about this, the Fed would normally want to see, to, to, to free inflation control, that the Fed funds rate is running above inflation. Well, headline inflation is 8%, you know, core inflation is running close to something like six. 
So, you know, this, the terminal rate on how far the Fed has to go may be much higher than they than, than we all want to believe. And and I think so. So it's not as if I think that we're done with this thing. I just think that the Fed is going to ultimately force a force, a, you know, a reckoning on on this thing and bring it under control. And the only question is, you know, how ugly is is that reconciliation process? And when you know, when exactly does it happen? My, my my gut tells me this is a medium recession and it starts in early 24, maybe late 23, not sooner. It's not a 2008 kind of uh, recession. But the longer this goes and the, and the, the worse, you know, the, the stickier this inflation proves to be, um, the, the more the Fed's going to have to beat this thing up. And, and, and that's, that's a, a fear. But on the other side of it, I do think multiples end up being higher. So Jonathan, no recession until early 24. And is that just because we still have so much pent up excess savings from the excess stimulus from, from, from the pandemic? Well, not that way. First of all, I think that that's true, but I, that, I, I, there's two big reasons. First, if you look on average, when the yield curve inverts, and when I'm talking about the yield curve, I'm talking about the three month tenure, on average, it takes 11 months to start the next recession. Okay. And it just inverted like a week ago. So yeah. all else being equal, that tells you that we should have a recession, you know, next October. However, the range runs between five months and 17 months. So roughly speaking, let's say the recession starts somewhere between April 1st of 23 and April 1st of 24. So then the question is, where in that range are you? And that mostly depends on um, this, the conditions in the labor market but it really is how many available jobs are there. So let me give you an example. So let's say, uh, you know, Drew, something bad happens to you and now you're, you're looking for work. If you, if you have to find that job and there's a ton of, of open job positions, you're going to keep spending. You don't care. Everything is fine. If, on the other hand, um, we start burning through those open positions right now. So what's like normally there's about 5 million open jobs late in the business cycle. Now there's over 10 million. So, um, you, you know, you lose your job, you find one, getting fired doesn't matter as long as you can get, get something else and you keep spending and everything's good. The, the, the overhang of excess jobs, because of what you're talking about, is just so much bigger than anything we've seen yeah. that, uh, that people are able to keep, uh, able to keep uh, spending. Um, and, and how long will, it's, it's really not clear how long it'll take to burn through that, but if, if 11 months from now, roughly, is when on average a recession would start plus or minus a bit. I think you're just, I think you're on the plus a bit. I think it's a little further out. Yes, how should we evaluate the Fed so far? Um, obviously, you know, this last Tuesday, they hiked it a bit more. We might see a couple rate hikes in 2023. Uh, it's obviously tough to tame the beast, um, getting a lot of flack, but be curious to hear your opinions. Uh, let's start with you, Jonathan. So if you would have asked me this question, six months ago, I, I, I think it was really clear that they were way behind the, the curve on this thing. They were really wrong about this transitory um, thing. Um, listen, it's really hard to, to predict the economy, but um, they, they got it wrong. And um, the terminal rate that they were saying how far they would take interest rates to, people were like, well, they'll take it to 2%. And it's like, there's no way they're going to have to go to a much higher number. Um, 
this move of four to 75 basis points four times um, has been really bold on their part to get to a uh, an interest rate that's in the zip code of reasonable. And they've all, and I think they're doing something, Powell's comments I thought were really spot on, which is right now the economy needs some time to process these rate hikes. It's about a year of delay. So they can keep pummeling the economy with high, with you know, 75 more and 75 more. And then all of a sudden we're gonna find that they overshoot. So they brought it to a level that they now, the right thing to do is to start to move in 50s and probably 25s and just to slow down the pace so they can give the economy a chance to give them some feedback so that when we have that next recession, it's a, an average or mild recession instead of blowing this thing up. So um, this is really, really hard stuff. If I were Jay Powell, I'm not sure I would have signed up for a second term in office because I think this is gonna be, I think this is gonna be really rough going. I also think that we have this assumption that this process is gonna be smooth. When the economy, when there's low inflation, everything that goes wrong in the economy, the Fed just eases, they just print money. That, that's easy. That's a great job to have. You know, we, we all wanted Bernanke's job. Now, but this, now you have a situation where you're trying to beat up on inflation and the second you really do a good job of it, you're gonna start killing the patient, the economy. And then they're gonna, and I think that there's a decent chance that there's a little bit more back and forth than we think. If you look back at what happened in the 80s and the 90s, it wasn't smooth. We, 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 we moved a bunch, we pulled back a little bit, we moved again, we pulled back again. It's, it's a much more fluid process than we think in periods where inflation is high and growth is weak. Yeah, I, but, but I, Jay Powell, is, Jay Powell is, is, I think, managing a really rough situation pretty decently right, right yeah. at the moment. Yeah, and I, I think I would agree with absolutely everything Jonathan just said. They got off to a really bad start. You know, let's not forget they were buying mortgage-backed securities when it was pretty clear that we were in a bit of a real estate bubble. You had affordability even when rates were still really low getting problematic. Uh, all the ratios showed you that housing was way overvalued. So why were they still buying back mortgage-backed securities? They made a terrible mistake when they said, you know, we're not going to anticipate inflation anymore because that's always that's been the wrong move. We're just really going to wait until it's punching us in the face. And unfortunately, they got what they're asked, asked for. But that's kind of all water under the bridge. Jim Bianco likes to say that with the recession, we aged by 10 years and it brought forth all of these things that we have been talking about, like the demographic issues and the worker shortage and so forth. So I think where they are now is where they ought to be. Uh, they've, they, they, they have these four 75 basis point moves. They're gonna go 50, they're gonna go 25, and they're data dependent. I mean, the Fed statement should be real simple every single time, we're data dependent. We don't know. We're gonna see where the data takes us, and yet we hang on every word. Uh, but, you know, I agree with Jonathan. It's going to be challenging because this persistence around wages and around energy inflation, even in a slow and potentially slow GDP economy, I think it's going to be tough on them. And, and I don't think they're going to have much choice to kill the patient. I, I don't I don't really agree with the Larry Summers of the world who says they got to go to 6% and maybe even higher than 6%. I think that especially because housing goes first. Housing is what is the first thing that they can really affect. I think it's going to have a meaningful impact on the economy. So, 
getting out there where they're only doing 25 basis points or nothing, being data dependent and watching to see what consumer demand looks like is the right thing to do. Um, today's election day, so I'm not going to spend much time forecasting. Uh, hopefully we'll find out sooner rather than later. There's not a lot of hanging chads in Georgia or Pennsylvania. Sometimes <laughs> a couple days, but, uh, you know, I, I guess our position, Jonathan, is that the Democrats are going to lose at least one chamber, most likely the Congress, and then maybe the Senate as well. How much of this is built in? I mean, how much do midterms really affect capital markets over the next couple of months? I just see policy paralysis, you know, once once this is all said and done. For the so, next I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll tell you, it's 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 interesting on the uh, on the evening that um, Trump uh, beat Hillary. Um, I got I I I I was out um, watching election results actually at at a bar with. All, all the, what used to be a sports bar all of a sudden became an election results bar. And, um, and I got a phone call from Bloomberg TV asking me to go on and, and um, very last minute um, to, to go and uh, co-host uh, co the show, which I wasn't ready for or anticipating, but it was, it was close. And you actually, at that moment, they were watching the Mexican peso was melting down and, you know, and the S&Ps, you know, the futures are going crazy. And, and and I did that. I was asked to um, to do this one, and I, I actually declined. Um, but I think this probably matters um, less. I mean, the, the Democrats had two years where they had both houses and the presidency, and largely because of um, you know you know whether it was Mansion or or other things where they they really weren't able to get everything they wanted done. It was probably a little bit less effective. Um, the president was successful from his perspective at using um, executive privilege to, to get a number of things through, things like student loans, but but wasn't but really did it around Congress. And I think those are going to end up being contentious issues that'll probably be challenged in the courts and, and the like. But if, if he couldn't get all that much done through Congress. Um, in the two years, because because of some of those challenges, um, the th this was this was the shot, and it, it's probably gone now. From a markets perspective, that probably is a um, it, it's probably not a terrible thing. Um, the, the government that's a little bit more hands off is probably not bad. Right now, the government has been overzealous already on providing stimulus. I think it's going to be impossible to do more stimulus in this kind of environment. Um, so I, I, it's probably the markets anticipating split Washington. They're going to get a split Washington. Whether the, the I think that the big thing that's going to come out of this discussion is not going to be well. The House that everybody's assuming, like you said, is going to go to to, uh, to to Republicans. The Senate looks like it's going to be a toss up, and it'll it'll be it'll be close. Um, I, I think the the real question is. Um, the, the Republicans who win office, most of those are gonna, we're gonna find are people that were endorsed by Donald Trump. I think that this is gonna be incredibly empowering to um, Donald Trump and, and I think we're gonna see his voice, which has been relatively quiet in the media and, and the like in the last couple of years, is gonna become much more visible. And I think he's gonna be playing a larger role on the political landscape than he was before. But I'll just make one quick, quick comment and I'll turn it over to, to Tim. Um, I say this and I, I, I kind of piss off both Democrats and Republicans. Um, 
the American president, for the most part, acts like the American president. We, we don't want to think that. Um, but Trump's policy on China or Trump's policy on Mexico or Trump's policy on on stimulus after the uh, you know pandemic was was surprisingly similar to Biden's policy on all of those things. Yeah. And we would like to you know and and you know it's really easy to say Biden created these jobs or Trump mm -hmm. created the strongest economy, blah blah. But it, but in reality, a lot of this is the backdrop they were operating in, and in most cases regardless of who your candidates is or your party is, the, the president really does act like the president more than we think and more than we want to believe. So I, I, I think this is probably going to prove to be less of a, a big deal. There are individual specific narrow areas that it'll matter, but you're going to be split anyway. Yeah, I agree with all that. The market's already anticipated having a having uh, McCarthy in charge of the House um, whether or not the Senate goes Republican as well doesn't really matter that much for, as far as I can tell, outside of judges and judges right now don't really have an impact on the market. Um, I think Jonathan's dead right about that, that for the things that matter to the market, immigration, you know, we, 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 we need more legal immigrants. It, that, that trend came down under Trump. It hasn't gone up under Biden because Biden knows that Ryan and Fetterman in Ohio and Pennsylvania can't run on a nuanced argument that actually, guys, if we bring in more immigrants, it'll help us grow industries and that'll be good for employment. That doesn't work. Um, so, you know, I think we'll have government that gets very little done. I think the risk is that we have a big debt ceiling fight. Uh, the question is, do the Democrats in this, um, in this lame duck Congress coming up, do they take the debt ceiling much higher because otherwise you're going to have, uh, you know, a real duel between uh, Congress and the president and the likely impact will be slower CPI or slower COLA adjustments for Medicare and Social Security. But again, I don't think that's terribly meaningful to markets here. You know, the historical president of, uh, you know, when you have a Democrat in, in the White House and a Republican Congress, that's been good for markets. I don't. I don't really care about those kind of historical stats. I think they're more quirks, you know. And, and nor would I have thought that I would have gotten more bearish if the Phillies won the World Series. Though it would have pissed me yeah. off, but it wouldn't have made me more bearish as a Mets fan. Yeah, just, it wasn't the Astros saving the American economy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Mattress Mac did not actually help. All right. Well, sounds good. Uh, thanks for your time, both of you gentlemen. Um, you know, for all listeners and subscribers. Be on the lookout uh, for this in both video and in the podcast settings, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.